0: This is Franchise Today, brought to you by FRM Solutions, providers of the best-in-class software solutions for franchise relationship management. Franchise Today is your destination for weekly information, conversations, and interviews with accomplished industry leaders, all of whom share best practices for sustainable growth and sensible franchising. Here now, your host, Stan Friedman, to kick off this week's podcast.
1: Today is Wednesday, August 23rd, 2023. I'm Stan Friedman, and this is Franchise Today. Well, a little housekeeping to attend to, as I had announced Julie Cartwright, president of P-Volve, as today's guest. But a little glitch in post-production will back that conversation up by a week or two. Instead, this week we'll hear from Brad Hillier, CEO of Rebath, about how his corner of the home service industry has taken off post-COVID and continues to expand. But just ahead of that, many thanks again to my longtime friend Andy Howard, President and CEO of Huey Magoo's. What a great brand and story Andy shared with us last week. And if anyone wonders whether he and his team will break through all of the traffic in that very crowded space, you need only remember how he and that very same team got Wingstop positioned years ago for acquisition by Rourke Capital ahead of its eventual IPO. Andy and company are still in early days with Yui's, but are already well on their way. So, keep your eyes on those guys and on this amazing emerging brand. And speaking, too, of ones to keep an eye on, we've got a quick visit from one of my Buffalo buddies today, Joe Duff, fresh off of a two-day takeover of the kitchen at downtown Tampa's Gen X Tavern. That's right, Duff's brought a taste of Buffalo to Tampa when they turned up the heat with this two-day pop-up event. And as I hear it, they managed to serve some 600-plus raving Duff's fans, but unfortunately had to turn away nearly as many who just couldn't make their way in. Joe Duff, tell us more about it.
2: Well, we decided to go down to Tampa, take over the Gen X Tavern uh, to look for a potential franchisee in the area. As uh, probably a lot of people know, if you're from Buffalo, Tampa is like a mini Buffalo. So it seems like a logical next step for us in terms of growth. And the pop-up was just unbelievable. It was bigger than we expected. We basically sold out a wing both days that we ran the event. We got a lot of great interest as well from potential franchisees while we were down there uh, which was great i think everybody saw just how crowded it was we had three hour wait day one and we got up to a two hour wait day two And I think everybody had a great time. Wings were great. Service was good. And it was a really fun event. Seems like it was a great marketing event for us too. Like I said, got a lot of really high quality franchisee applications after the event. So all around great for us. Great for the owners of the Gen X Tavern who let us take over their restaurant for a little bit. And great for Tampa who got to taste some original buffalo wings.
1: So it wouldn't be too cliche, would it, for me to say how proud and happy I am to be helping you guys spread your wings? Uh, no,
2: I don't think that that would be a uh, cliche at all. And we definitely couldn't have done the event without your guidance. I know you and Greg were kind of gnawing on and chewing on an idea of doing a pop-up at some breweries or something like that. We just so happened to have that stick in the fire with this guy in Tampa, and we got to see what uh, response a Duffs in Tampa would bring, and I, I think it was pretty impressive if I do say so myself, so I think from from you guys hatching the idea to... Uh, me doing a lot of the marketing behind it and then Greg just crushing the operations of the whole thing. Um, it was a, a three, three way effort between all of us. And, a, and then of course I do have to say our cooks, they were the star of the show, the superstars of the show. Had these two guys who just crushed chicken wings in all the orders. Uh, chicken wings and the beef on Weck were down there. So by all means, I think it was, uh, just a well executed and well thought out
1: plan. Don't- I think it's time for us to put some people on notice in markets like Charlotte, Raleigh-Durham, other markets in Florida, that Duff's is coming your way. And that while we know that there are significant populations, at least in those marketplaces that I just called off, transplanted Buffalonians, Western New Yorkers that already know and love Duff's, I think a large percentage from what I heard from Greg of the people who made their way to the event. We're seeing and tasting the product for the first time and becoming raving fans, along with those who already knew what to expect.
2: For sure, the Buffalonians definitely talk. I know that I talked to a few different groups from people who are from out of Buffalo, And not even from Tampa, Cincinnati comes to mind, Nashville comes to mind, just people from Buffalo who they worked with, who said, you know, you got to go to this pop-up, these wings are legit, and made their way to our pop-up event. It wasn't just Buffalonians there for sure, it was a mix of Buffalonians, (laughs) Tamponians, like I said, I don't know if that's right. Yeah, I'm not sure that's right either. (laughs) It doesn't sound right to me. What (laughs) What are people from Tampa called? I don't know. We're called Buffalonians. That's why I want to say (laughs) it. What they're called Uh, is
1: transplanted New Yorkers. That's what they're called. You're right.
2: You're right. (laughs) So yeah, it was a heck of a response. And uh, I think everybody, no matter where you're from, it seems that way, at least if you check our social media, lots of rave reviews, we're just loving
1: it. Awesome. Well, first of many and many more to come. And I'm looking forward to getting closer with you and with Greg working more closely together on planning some of these on a go forward basis. And I'm just proud as I can be and thrilled to be working with you Guys, and we're already having more fun than ought to be legal Joe, with a great deal more on the horizon as buffs breaks into new territory nationwide.
2: Yeah, we're looking forward to working with you a lot more, Stan. Especially given, like I said, that response in Tampa, the amount of uh, outreach for franchises after that event. I don't think there was a better thing we could have done to get some high quality franchise interest. And I think that because of that, we'll have some work to do. We got to get back with our brains together and kind of nail out. And I know I already know we've got some. Media with guys so
1: we've got some stuff
2: on our plate and i'm excited to tackle it with you
1: excellent looking forward to it as well joe and we'll be talking again really soon right now it's time for a quick time out and when i return i'll be introducing you to ReBath's ceo brad hillier stand by don't go away Franchise
0: Today will be right back. But first, a word from our sponsors.
1: Franchisors of restaurants, bars, and grills, and multi-unit franchisees, listen up. This message is for you. If you're looking to engage guests, elevate profits and enhance your customer experience, Atmosphere TV is the answer. What's Atmosphere, you ask? Atmosphere is the world's number one streaming TV service for businesses here to help you make more and save big on overpriced cable packages. Atmosphere provides you with a free programming option bringing more than 60 ultra-engaging audio-optional channels designed to please customers and increase their average ticket. So How does it work? Well, it's easy. Upon sign-on, Atmosphere sends you a free device, loaded with over 60 channels of eye-grabbing entertainment. From news and sports to viral videos and fuzzy animals, every channel is family-friendly and designed to keep your customers happy and engaged. Plus, thanks to Atmosphere's 100% audio-optional format, the programming is perfect for any setting, no matter how loud or busy. So, stop playing and paying overpriced cable. Go with free TV instead. Just go to Atmosphere.tv forward slash sign up and use the code franchise and Atmosphere will waive the usual one-time $99 activation fee for your free to stream device. Visit Atmosphere online at Atmosphere.tv and remember, use the code franchise to waive your one-time activation fee. Visit Atmosphere.tv to elevate your franchise's entertainment experience today. The bathroom remodeling industry in the U.S. is booming, with more and more homeowners looking for ways to upgrade their bathroom space. From modernizing fixtures to adding custom features, bathroom remodeling can be a great way to add value and function to a home. According to Harvard University's Joint Center for Housing Studies, the remodeling space grew to more than $420 billion in 2020, and it shows no signs of slowing down anytime soon. As the interest and demand for bathroom renovations continues to grow, ReBath is taking advantage of this incredible opportunity as the only national bath remodeling franchise. Brad Hillier is their CEO, and he's here to tell us all about it. Brad Hillier, welcome to Franchise Today. Thanks. It's great to be here with you. I've been looking forward to having this conversation, Brad, because what I heard about what you wanted to share with us today is a lot more about culture than it is about technology. And since post COVID, all I hear about is how fast technology has advanced and how people have disappeared. But I think that in cultures like yours, people are a little less likely to disappear. And we're going to talk about that as we unfold and unpack all that we're here to discuss today. But we need to begin the way I always do, asking you as a big four kind of accounting guy, I guess. When and how did franchising make its way into your life? And what did that look like? What were you doing when franchising found you?
3: So it was in uh, 2010, Uh, when I stumbled into franchising and the way in which I found it as I was uh, doing some consulting work around debt structures and debt organization and uh, with private equity fund. And they were the owners of Rebath and Rebath ultimately became a client of mine and uh, in that work in 2010. And I fell in love with uh, the company and the concept of uh, what the company was trying to accomplish, and an opportunity came up to become the CFO. And uh, and so I took that opportunity in the fall of 2010 and became the CFO of Rebath. In 2012, I became the COO of Rebath. And then in 2015, I became the CEO of Rebath. And, uh, and it's funny, even though I've been in franchising now for, I guess, 13 years, I just still don't really think about myself as a franchising person, even though I've been in the industry for 13 years. But I love the industry of franchising and the people that you come across in this industry because everybody's out to solve problems and the entrepreneurial spirit is alive and well, which I think is uh, super exciting.
1: So as a CFO to a COO to the CEO, what did you draw upon during those years to fast track your need to know more information about the franchise side of the business that you are in? How'd you go about doing that?
3: So in 2010, 11, you know, I very quickly realized I knew nothing about franchising and, and ultimately the psychology of franchisees, if you will, you know, the way in which they think and the way in which they act and behave relative to the corporate office. And it became pretty clear in, in 2010 and 11 that sort of landing on a, a common mindset of how we wanted to view one another and how we wanted to treat one another was sort of at the core of... I would say maybe successful franchise organizations, you know, and I, I heard people talk about us as a supplier to them and then being our customer, a variety of other analogies. And the one that I think ultimately made the most sense to me is, is that we're partners, right? And, uh, and maybe the way in which I, I view it and the way in which I've explained it to some of our franchisees is that we are a partnership, but we're not necessarily equal partners right? And so maybe think about us from a a 51-49 partnership split. And if you thought about that, I have a 49% partner. I mean, what that person has to say, their views, like they matter, they matter a great deal. But at the end of the day, because one of us is the 51% partner, one person does get to sort of make the decision. And in fact, one person has to make the decision if you can't agree. And in a franchise network, I think having all of the franchisees agree with everything all the time is, is not feasible to get done. And so you do need to have this mindset that somebody does ultimately have to make a decision when there's not 100% agreement. But like you would with a 51 49% partner, you ought to spend a lot of time trying to get to agreement. And I think that's the model that we've sort of adopted here at Rebath. And it's worked pretty well for us to understand how to respect our franchise franchisees and hear their views. And take their opinions, and not just their opinion, but like really actually partner with them on solving problems. And then at the same time, having the confidence, and courage, and permission within the franchise network that if we can't all come to an agreement, you know, a decision still has to be made in order for us to move forward, and that we need to respect that decision. And that seems to have worked pretty well for us uh, over the last several years of as we've incorporated that.
1: So I think I can abide by your definition. There are those in franchising that have been often. Against the idea of considering calling franchisees partners because of the governance of the the one-way drafted documents that are the franchise agreements that they sign. But I think if you put it in the parlance that you did, I can make more sense out of that and still find the value of calling them partner. They're just not the majority partner. And I think that helps kind of smooth the edge on that opinion. I kind of like that idea actually. It's worked well for us. So how different did your life change from coming in as a CFO and Moving into COO and tell us the answer to that before I ask you the same question again about moving from COO to CEO.
3: Yeah, so you know the CFO role was sort of a lot about uh, reporting on what had happened historically, forecasting what had what was going to happen into the future, and you know sort of managing cash and and debt. And I'd say not to discount all the other CFOs out there because I still consider myself to be a finance guy. But it's it's one thing to sort of account for it or report on it, it's another thing to be the one that's responsible for it. You know, and and I would say that realization became more real for me when I became the COO. And uh, and if you talk to the CFO version of me in in 2011 before becoming the COO, I certainly would have said I was responsible for it. But I don't know that that was really innately true inside me the same way that it was after I became the COO, where all of a sudden I was making decisions that were affecting change as opposed to just reporting on it a little bit more. And uh, and certainly the level of uh, responsibility. The level level of accountability to have really sort of thought through your actions uh, and to understand that, you know, it's like it's more difficult than it might look, you know, to make those decisions on the fly. I'd say that was sort of the big learning point for me or the big transition point for me between being... The CFO and the COO. And
1: then after becoming COO, did it help you understand that numbers have stories behind them? I remember a CFO once when I was in franchise development for a real estate conversion company, ERA Real Estate. My job was to convert independent brokers to franchise brokers under our flag. And we had monthly and quarterly goals and forecasts on the number of dollars that we were going to produce in revenue by bringing in new franchisees. And I had a CFO once whose number was always a bigger, number than i would ever feel i could own and i would tell him bob i'm not comfortable with that number and bob's reply to me was stan your comfort is not my concern (laughs) <laughs> which is a very, very hard-nosed CFO. I always felt like it's better to get somebody to own the number and then stretch to get it and hit it than to make it so unrealistic as you stop trying because you just don't think you can attain it. What's your view on that?
3: So I would say as a CFO, I always felt a, a pretty high level of responsibility for the numbers, but there was always this exit hatch, I guess, that you could pop out of, which was that somebody else was making some of those decisions. And so even though I had a pretty high level of accountability for the numbers or responsibility for the numbers and did take ownership for us hitting them. There was sort of a little bit of an out in the back of my mind. And and certainly when you become the COO, there's no more out. You know, like you're the one who made the decision and you're the one reporting on them. It's one and the same. so certainly I, I think the absoluteness maybe of the ownership uh changed some. And I actually tend to promote more what I call run rate budgets or forecasts, which are just sort of the trend that the business is on based on decisions that have already been made, initiatives that have already been executed. That to me is sort of the the realistic outcome that should be expected. And I don't generally build budgets with like these, you know, swing for the fence, like we have to hit this initiative in order to get to the budget kind of outcome. Mm-hmm. I, I might have a forecast for that, you know, and we might be talking about the outcome of that initiative, but I, I, I generally try to make sure that the numbers are achievable, I I tend to think people are more motivated when they feel like they've had success and they feel like they've had success by hitting numbers as opposed to throwing out this huge number that they become disillusioned on that they can't hit, right? I don't think that's motivational. So so I've generally uh, tried to keep the numbers much more attainable and try to create a culture of exceeding the numbers as opposed to just sort of getting to the number, if that makes
1: sense. It makes a lot of sense. And I appreciate you sharing that with the audience. There are nuggets in there of take-home value that I think those in the audience will benefit from. Brad, let's talk a little bit about the COVID era, and we all know how the service industries have just flourished post COVID. But tell us, if you will, a little bit about getting through that time when your business is getting into people's homes and their bathrooms. In 2020, I have to believe that your business must have really hit the brakes. Yeah.
3: What an amazing time to be alive and what an amazing time to be the leader of an organization for any of us that we're leading something during that period of time. Like, I, I'm not sure that we'll ever have an event like that in our lifetimes again that we have to lead or manage through. And so for somebody who likes new challenges, you know, what an opportunity. COVID created to sort of figure out how to manage through that. For us as a business, I, I'm going to break it into two different parts. I'm going to break it into the part of our franchise organization with a bunch of rules and regulations and, and procedures that need to be followed. We were relatively early sort of into our transition of being uh, more franchise specific. And we found ourselves with a question at the beginning of COVID as a franchisor about like how rigid do we want to be as a franchisor about our franchisees following certain rules and protocols and procedures and and so on and so forth versus how much do we want to relax all that and give people the opportunity to navigate through and survive through COVID however they want. And and we decided to relax and and remove a number of requirements, reporting requirements, spending requirements, so on and so forth over 2020, just to create the flexibility within our franchise network to be like, hey, it's not like we have a great roadbook on how to navigate through a pandemic. And so collectively, we can figure it out together. And there's probably many paths, and we're just going to open it up to take those many paths. But we did have to promise ourselves that at the end of the pandemic, we were going to come back together as an organization and go back to a a unified form of operation, which we've done. So that's one interesting aspect of COVID. The other related to consumers, and, and I think for us, a couple of things happened. Each state obviously operated differently. And so during COVID, we had some states that we're still doing installs. We were actually designated as an essential service. And so in some states we were still out actually in people's homes installing bathrooms. The sales side of the house certainly stopped and came to a halt for a a two month period of time. But we generally run about a a two month backlog. And so for franchisees in states that were allowed to go into homes and for consumers that still wanted us to come into their home and and remodel their bathrooms, there was actually still work to do during the, the two months where the country was, down. And for other states, it was you know, more focused on how do we think about maintaining relationships and communications with customers that had already bought a bathroom remodel from us? And uh, when were they going to get that? And how was that going to look? And then exploring new ways in which we might do business. And so we, we spent a lot of time exploring virtual sales presentations and ways to do design remotely and, and so on and so forth, which fortunately the, the country opened back up relatively quickly and we ended up sort of getting back to doing business the way we had done it before. But those were a couple of things for us in COVID.
1: So some of the things that have been noticed over the course of the last year or two, maybe even longer, it just seems like the last couple of years is that frontline employees in almost every business model have been disappearing. And literally, I still don't know where they're going. Maybe some of the congressional oversight that's taking place on unidentified aerial phenomena may explain <laughs> some of it, but frontline employees seem to be gone. Restaurants have lines out the door with sections that are closed because they don't have the wait staff. And in the service businesses, I've seen the same. I think, though, that some of the remedy for that might be keeping and retaining people that want to stay employed where they are because they feel valued and they're on a career path, or they've got a, an organization that brings value to a culture of appreciation, which is something that I was stricken by when I saw show notes about you. Talk to us about the culture and how rich it is and how deep it runs through every aspect of the business.
3: Yeah. And so I would say for us, the majority of the employees, if not all of the employees of our franchisees are running careers. So maybe different for us than in the restaurant space or maybe some other home services type companies, there's an opportunity within our businesses, whether you're you're on the sales side or whether you're on the production side to really have meaningful careers with meaningful income. And so I think for us, we've done a, a pretty good job of uh, creating that career path and career culture within the franchise network. And I say us, I mean our franchisees uh, more than us at the corporate office, just about creating these paths and opportunities for people with a lot of training and a lot of skill sets being developed across that. And, and so our retention levels are pretty high and our ability to attract employees have been quite good. And so like everybody in the the second part of 2020, when we were coming back from COVID and our business was exploding, yeah, we had shortages as well, just like everybody else. But we've been able to hire a significant number of people and increase the capacity to manage the growth, really, frankly, in a, a pretty astonishing way. And I think that that ties into also being part of an industry that's rapidly changing. And so I'd say from a culture perspective, maybe this opportunity that exists that we spend a lot of time talking about. We work in a, a rather large industry that is very fragmented across hundreds of thousands of general contractors, and and those general contractors operate on their own in their own small company. There's not really a, a sense of community, if you will, kind of across the industry that you might have in some other industries that are more consolidated. and And I think that people who want to play in this space are really being attracted to the fact that we have a community that you're not bathroom salesperson or an installer working in Biloxa, Mississippi on your own. But you're doing that in conjunction with hundreds, if not a couple thousand other people across 44 states and the ability to share ideas and learn across our platforms and connect with other installers, other sales professionals, and be part of a larger organization that is transforming an industry. I, I think people are finding that to be very exciting and uh, rewarding.
1: I'll tell you what, it's time to take a quick break. And when we come back let's dive deeper into how it is to recruit to that train for that and retain from that we're talking today with brad hillier ceo of rebath this is franchise today i'm stan friedman and we'll be right back
0: franchise today we'll be right back but first a word from our
1: sponsors Join a peer group, not just any peer group. Join the only one designed for emerging franchisors. Join Zor Forum. Learn more at Zorforum.com. That's www.Zorforum.com. We're back with Brad Hillier, CEO of Rebath, talking about the culture of of his organization and how important the culture is to the success of Rebath every bit as much as the product that they put out there and manufacture. And Brad, when we talk about empowering with autonomy, which was something that was a bullet point in messaging that I received about your philosophy, can you tell us about that best practice and how that works inside of Rebath? And does that work just within the organization for employees or do you carry that all the way out to the front line?
3: I think we carry it throughout the front line. And so let me define that a little bit better. The times where I felt the most satisfied in my career are times when I feel like I've added the most value. And when I think about times when I've added the most value, it's because there's been a problem or a challenge, and I feel like I've been part of the solution for that problem or the challenge, right? And in some cases, maybe I solved it on my own. In some cases, maybe I solved it in conjunction with other people. But point being, problem or challenge was identified. I was part of a group of people that created the solution for it, the solution worked. Therefore, I felt like I added value. Therefore, I felt very satisfied and fulfilled in my role at the organization and my job. And that's something I came to realize a number of years ago, probably 15, 20 years ago in my career. And so when I became the leader of this organization, I was like, well, how do we we get more people to be satisfied with their jobs? The answer would then be for them to add value. How do we get them to add value? And the answer would be to have them be part of the problem solving organization. And I looked at other companies that I've been a part of that had a lot of rules regulations and and when you have too many rules and regulations, it doesn't allow people to create the solutions because they're stuck operating within this certain confine that you created. And so I adopted what I would call a policy light organization. And so here at the corporate office, as it relates to our employees, we don't have very many policies or procedures. We don't have a lot of forms that get filled out. We don't have a lot of planning documents, project planning documents, so on and so forth. We've left ourselves pretty loose as it relates to policies and procedures. And the reason for that That is not to create problems artificially, but to make sure that our staff really feel empowered to solve for a problem when it comes up and that they're not just stuck filling out a form, that if there's a better way to do it, employ the better way to do it. And I think that does a couple of things. One, it allows us as an organization to harness the creative power that exists within the walls of our building, right? With the people that we have and to really take advantage of their ideas, their creative solutions, their problem-solving capabilities. And that makes us better as an organization. But then two, it also makes sure that the employees really do feel the opportunity to engage in that with which uh, then again allows them to be part of the problem solving process, which I think makes them feel valuable, which then leads to satisfaction within their careers. And therefore, we have very low turnover. And I think this policy light process or procedure or way of doing business that we have, we try to lead that down to our franchisees as well. We're not a franchise organization that's really out testing a lot of compliance. We really are more about like, hey, as long as we're doing the right thing, sort of going in the right way, let's focus on progress and forward movement. The specifics about how we get there, like there can be flexibility and creativity that comes from that. And I think then transcends from the franchise owners down to the employees in their organization as well. And so we have lots of folks who make ideas and suggestions and come up with better ways of doing things than what we could from a corporate office that are out in the home running sales presentations or in the home installing bathtubs. And we want to harness that power potential. And the way we do that is this process light kind of
1: concept. So there's a dichotomy in that for me. And I'm liking part of what I hear. The part of me that's struck with conflict is an enfranchised organization. How do you maintain consistency of experience across the brand and so many people who may be doing things their way instead of the franchisor way? So where are the lines on that? And how do you manage and train through that so that you know you're still in control of a consistent brand experience? So
3: I think that for me, that sort of lands on a level, if you will, in the organization, So are the controls around that customer experience sort of down at level eight in the organization or are they kept up at level two? And we try to keep those controls at a little bit higher level. And then secondly, I'd say we're more focused on sort of the outcome of the experience than the specific how to, right? And so we're trying to create this flexibility of how you want to get back to a customer, whether you want to get back to them through text or whether you want to get back to them through phone or whether you want to. Get back to them through an email or the actual script associated with that, and so on and so forth. You can have some flexibility in that as long as you're back to them within 24 hours. So, sort of setting that expectation of this is the outcome or the result we need, and sort of leaving some of the more how to up to them. But we seem to have been able to find a balance to sort of get to that. And then we spend a significant amount of time and effort surveying customers. So, we survey customers through every part of where they spill out of the sales process we survey every customer post the install just to gauge their experience and what's happening with the experience. And to the extent that that's not quite on par, then we're talking to the franchisees about the how-to that did not lead to the experience that we wanted. And I think the franchisees appreciate that enough that they're respectful of the fact that we are trying to deliver this certain customer experience. And for us, it seems to be working right now.
1: I think you kind of checked the box for me. So the mandate is going to get in touch with the customer within 24 hours. How you do it? I really don't care. Just get it done. That's of what I heard. You he reminded me of a story that I heard years ago. Stephen Covey was actually teaching us himself. That's how old this story is about seven habits of highly effective people. This is back in probably the early 90s. And we were being taught in this weekly program with him at the Ritz-Carlton in Atlanta in Buckhead. And he told us a story about the Ritz-Carlton and the culture of empowerment there, the appreciation for frontline employees. It could be people cleaning rooms. It could be somebody in maintenance. If a customer was walking down a hallway that looked to be having, a problem with something and you're an employee at the Ritz, you are empowered to ask, is there something I can do to help? Is there a problem? And the first inclination for the customer would be to look at your uniform that you're wearing and say, no, you can't help me, but I need a manager. And every Ritz Carlton employee at every level had a $1,500 empowerment to solve a problem on the spot, to fix it right there. And that was an amazing thing to learn. And you talk about feeling important enough that you can just solve problems that are above your pay scale by just caring and taking ownership of something that you're walking into life like a first responder and taking care of it and fixing it on the fly. So I thought of that when you were talking about the empowerment of autonomy.
3: Yeah, that's a great story. So
1: let's get on to the franchise side for a minute while we've got some time left to talk about who it is that you're looking for, who it is that should be looking for you and how you go about awarding franchisees, whether single unit, multi-unit through brokers or through sales organizations. How does it look on your landscape?
3: Yeah. So we have sort of two types of people in our franchise network today. We have people who come from the trades or come from some kind of home improvement, home remodeling kind of background. They do very well because obviously the technical aspects of what we do in the bathroom makes sense for them and they're up and running on that pretty quick. And we provide a lot of value to them in the forms of marketing support, sales support, how to sort of grow or drive an enterprise. That partnership seems to work quite well. We have a second type of person which which is uh, I sort of refer to them as uh, serial entrepreneurs. So people that have started businesses before or have been around running businesses that are more marketing or sales minded, we do very well with them because we're able again to help them with the technical aspects of being in the bathroom. We don't have a lot of, I'll call it like the displaced executive that wanted to get into business for themselves. We don't have a lot of that in our network. So we tend to have a lot more smaller business, serial entrepreneurs or guys that come from the trades that do well with our brand. What we're looking for is we're looking for people who want to build an enterprise. We're not the kind of franchise brand that you buy a territory that is small and you make enough money to sort of make a living, but that's some of your territory. We're not the kind of franchise brand where you have to buy multiple territories to make a good living or to have a good outcome. The average revenue per franchise right now is about $5.2 million. And the average franchisee is putting about 15 to 18 points on the bottom. And so these are pretty decent sized businesses that our franchisees are running and are quite profitable. And so they're complicated though. They're complex, right? That for a $5 million business, you've got a lot of crews out in the field doing a lot of bathrooms and a lot of salespeople out in the field and you're ordering a lot of product and receiving a lot of products. So these are not simple businesses to run. And so they require business-minded people, but people that want an enterprise a kind of business, folks that want to work on their business, not in their business. That's the kind of person we're trying to attract.
1: What's a day in the life of a franchisee look like inside of a rebound? franchise?
3: So for the franchise owner themselves, it's about building your team and organizing your team. It doesn't take very long for our franchisees to be big enough where the franchise owner is not actually executing on a day-to-day sort of tasks. It's about building a team, organizing your team, managing your team is really sort of what the day-to-day ultimately looks like. I guess, Brad,
1: the only thing I'm left to ask you before I ask you to give contact info is, is there anything today that you wished I would have asked and didn't?
3: No, I've enjoyed talking with you today. I found the questions to be actually thought-provoking for me and has made me reflect on some of the things that I think are going well in our organization and maybe uh, a couple of things that we could possibly reconsider and do a little bit better at. And so I've enjoyed my time chatting with you today, Stan. Thanks for having me.
1: Well, I've enjoyed having you here as well. How about giving some contact info, some others who have kind of listened in on this little half hour together, will have an opportunity to find you again.
3: Yeah, you can get a hold of me at brad.hillier at rebathcorp.com and send me an email and I'd be happy to get in touch with you.
1: Awesome. Brad, thanks so much for sharing so much and for spending some time with us and giving us the insights about the success of your business. And we wish you nothing but the best going forward.
3: Thank you. It's been great being with you.
1: Well, there it is. Yet another fine conversation headed into the archives. Next week, I'm joined by industry veteran Greg Long, CEO at Phoenix Franchise Brands. They're the franchisors of Fetch Pet Care, Door Renew, Spray Foam Genie, and Furryland Pet Mobile Grooming. Until then, I'm Stan Friedman wishing you the best, the very best of all things franchising, and Franchise Today is out.
0: Franchise Today is a production of FRM Solutions, providing best-in-class CRM tools to empower relationships with prospective and existing franchisees. No excuses, just solutions. Find them online at frmsolutions.com. Join Stan every Wednesday at noon Eastern for another live episode of Franchise Today. Or, as always, download episodes on demand at... blogtalkradio.com or iTunes.